Father, as we come to sit beneath your word, we ask that you would teach us from it, that you'd help us to understand it, that you would use your word to shape us and sanctify us. We ask that the word would be accompanied by the working of your sovereign Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been said that the premier and all-encompassing blessing of the new covenant is the Christian's union with Christ. United to Him, He and all that He is becomes ours and we become His so that through that union, what the Scripture says, we can say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. All that He is becomes ours and we become His. This incomprehensible blessing that we call union with Christ comes to us through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit that is Christ's Spirit that dwells in Christ comes to dwell in us so that the same Spirit that's in Him animates our spiritual lives, our souls, and we're united to Him through the Holy Spirit. Before His ascension, our Lord told His disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In the book of Acts, Luke records it this way in Acts 1, 4, and 5. While staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The promise of the Father that He's referring to there was that Holy Spirit that indwells the, the believer. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, after preaching of the ascended Christ, or, or in preaching of the ascended Christ, he says, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." And then later on, the Apostle Paul would say, "...in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles." so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And he writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says, "...in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit." So a Christian is one who has received this great promise, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And by the gift of that Spirit, it being recipients of that promise, we are brought into union with the very Son of God. And as we've said in the past, the, the, an important work or ministry of the Holy Spirit is he, is he takes the works of God and brings them to perfection like He did in the work of creation. In each of us, the Spirit is working to sanctify us, to make us more holy. And the same is true with the church. Local churches, the universal church, however we want to think of it, the gift of the Holy Spirit has been given to bring the church to its completed status. Paul says that Christ's aim is that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. Now, we've not yet entered that phase. We've not been presented to Christ without spot or blemish or any such thing. But we have received the gift, the promised Holy Spirit, who does that work. So we find ourselves in this, in this process where because of the Word of God and the revelation of God, we kind of get an insight into what has happened, what is happening, and what's the, the goal of it all. We've received the promised Holy Spirit. God has given, Christ has given and outpoured His Holy Spirit upon His church. The end goal is that we would be holy. So in the middle, what's happening? Well, the Spirit is making us holy. He's bringing us to that end. Individuals, families, and churches, all who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, what can we expect for that to look like this side of eternity. What, what, what should we imagine that to look like? What can we expect a local church to look like prior to our glorified state and yet presently under the powerful working of God's Holy Spirit? Now because of a, the, the rise in popularity of, of a business model approach to church, many believe that a, a true work of God the Holy Spirit in a church will manifest itself in large crowds and big budgets, uh, rooms full of people who are giggly and bubbly and who love high fives and free t-shirts, loud, emotionally stirring, mind-numbing, repetitive music, programs for every classification of attendee, and ultimately preaching that leaves both the saved and the lost feeling really encouraged every time they leave the church. That's what a lot of people think it means when God is blessing a church. But that's wrong. We don't see that in Scripture. What I want to do for us today is in this final study of this series is to try to lay out a picture of what a, what a church is going to look like when the Holy Spirit's really working. How, how can we know? Men in the past have attempted to do this. Jonathan Edwards wrote about spiritual revival and and what you could expect to see in a, a true work of the Holy Spirit in, in combating the errors of His day. And this, will, this won't be anything in comparison to what other men have written. But I just want to give you a little picture. A lot of times if we have in our minds what the Scriptures describe, what we're supposed to be aspiring after, if we have that in our minds, it helps us to know how we can play our particular roles in, in this series, how we can use the gifts that have been given to us. I think we, we ought to be able to expect that the members of the body will be keeping in step with the Spirit of God and that the gifts of the Spirit are going to be active for the common good of the whole church. That's generally what we could expect. Remember that a spiritual gift is a specific manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in the heart and the mind of a believer. And that's going to produce obvious, fruitful, effectual habits and practices in generally one of two areas, either the use of the Word of God or the display of the love of God for the people of God in deeds. They're manifestations of the Spirit. His working in people to edify the church. Do we expect perfection? No, that's glory. What do we expect? Do we expect no change at all? No. We have received the promised Holy Spirit. So we expect something in between that's going to look like the Spirit using the people of God in the church. 
The gifts as we've listed them are speaking with knowledge, teaching, speaking with wisdom, prophecy, discernment, mercy, exhortation, giving, helping or service, administration, faith. This list, again, was not and is not meant to be exhaustive. It's not a cut and dry list. The lines are not bold and black and white. It's, it's not given to us so that we might paint ourselves into a corner and say, well, I, I'm gifted with... Uh, speaking with wisdom and therefore I don't have to be merciful or, or I'm gifted with mercy and therefore I never have to speak uh, words of, of rebuke or reproof to anyone. That's, that's not the way they're supposed to be taken. It, it's an, it's an all-encompassing sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to yield ourselves to that Spirit. Understand how He works. Understand what the picture is to be. What we're aiming after. And then just yield to Him. Live as He leads. Speak as He leads. That's the, that's the goal. What is it going to look like if we're doing this? Or we could say, what will it look like when we all, in love for Christ and His church, yield ourselves to be freely used by God for the edification of His body? I want to answer that question using three main headings or, or subjects. The first would be the goal of the word gifts. The second would be the goal of the deed gifts. And then lastly, we'll finish with a picture of a word-saturated, sacrificially loving church. What does it look like? I think that we would all like to go home every Lord's Day and, and live Monday through Saturday under the impression that we are a part of a church where the Spirit of God is actually working. I think we would all say that's what we want. I hope that we wouldn't be content to say, well... The Spirit of God's clearly not working and nothing's really happening and there's no reason to believe it's a true church at all, but that's my church and so I, we don't want that. We, we shouldn't settle for that. We, we, we want to know. So, what, is it, what does it look like when a church is saturated in the Word and loving one another? First, we need to understand the goal of the Word gifts or, or to, to put it in the form of a question, what should we have in mind as the goal for the use of those word gifts? The same question could be asked this way. What should we expect to be accomplished by the use of the Word of God in the church? What, what should we expect to be accomplished? Here's how I would answer it. The goal of the exercise of the word gifts is that through the power of the Holy Spirit the Word of Christ would find an ever-expanding place in the heart and life of each individual saint, thereby establishing the whole church body as a pillar and buttress of truth in the world. Now, that's the, the goal, but there are several steps to that. The root of all of, of these gifts that we would call word gifts, the, the root assumption is that the Word of God is going to be used by the people of God in the routine activities of church life. Some of you are tradesmen, and you know that there are tools that you use every single day. And there are some tools that you might call specialty tools. Some of you ladies in the kitchen and the home, it's the same. There are things you use every single day, but there are specialty things. And usually those specialty tools, they get... Special treatment. You know, they, their, their packaging is preserved a little longer. You use it, you put it back up, you put it on a shelf. I'll get that back out the next time I need it. But then there are those, those everyday routine tools that you say there's no use in keeping the box, the instructions, the warranty, throw it out. I'm going to use this every single day. I'm going to wear it out before 
I can before I know it because I use it so often. In the church, the Word of God, which we find in the Bible, is not a specialty tool. It is a routine tool. It is the routine tool that we use. It's not something that we keep stored in its original box with the instruction manual packed inside of it with years on end. Now, of course, I'm not speaking about the fact that you might have a nice Bible that you keep in the box to take care of it. I'm using the illustration of those tools. The Word of God is the very tool which we use every single day. We use it so often, there's no use to put it back in the box. It's what we use. It's what we would keep in our tool belt, not in a, in a shelf or in the truck. And this is the point. When it comes to the use of the Word of God, we, we cannot afford to be the kind of people who simply assume that the Word of God is known or understood or believed. Not in our homes, not in our marriages, not with our children, not in the church. We don't just assume that it's known. We don't just assume, well, everybody understands. We don't assume everybody gets it. We don't assume everybody is already here or there. We diligently and actively put it to use. It is our supreme tool. And, and that truth, especially for a preacher, is, is, is a treasure to me. Because I recognize when I get up here, and maybe you recognize this too. You say, this guy said the same thing for six weeks in a row. This guy says the same thing every six months. I've only got one book to work from. Now, there's a lot in there. And there, there are seasons when we work through different portions of it. But there are times when I, I take comfort in, in what Peter said. When he says, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to remind you, stir you up by way of reminder of the same things. He said, that's, that's of, of no hurt to you. It doesn't hurt me to just keep reminding you of the same things. We don't assume it. We don't come in together and say, well, I'm not going to mention today the substitutionary atonement of the death of Christ because I talked about that last week. I can't do that. I'm not going to assume it. There, there have been many situations, and, and you learn this with your children, and husbands and wives learn this. You, you say the same thing. You feel like you say the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. And then you finally say, I've said it all that I can say it. Six months later, they come to you and say, you'll never believe what I read. And they tell you what you told them, you know, over and over. Now, you can either get very angry and say, you, you didn't listen to me. Or you can say, praise the Lord, He's helping you to see the truth. So I, I know that to be a fact that I can preach something so many times. And people can come to me six months later and they'll say, you never heard, believe what I heard in a sermon the other day. And I'll say, have I not been saying that for years? I don't know. But, but that's okay. We can't assume it. We have to use the Word of God. Now, how do we use it? Several texts are helpful here. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. The word you there is plural. He's speaking to all of them, the whole church. Let the Word of Christ dwell in y'all. The whole body needs to be in richly dwelling, settled down in, finding its home in every, every member and in the whole body together. And then he goes on to elaborate on how this happens, how this comes to be. How is it that the Word of Christ comes to dwell, to settle down in or find a home in the hearts of all of the saints in the church? It's through teaching and admonishing with wisdom. It's through teaching. It's through admonishing that the Word of Christ dwells and the Word of Christ dwelling comes out in teaching and admonishing. We don't take it in and say, well, we, we're, we're all members here. We all know the Scriptures. Let's move on to something else. No, we keep using the same things. 
teaching, using the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, and then using the Word of God as a teaching tool. And then admonishing is, finds its application typically in, in counseling or specifically warning. To admonish is often to warn of the dangers. Use the Word of God to do that. Another passage that we know well, 2 Timothy 3.16, says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that we have teaching again. Then there's reproof, which means to point out error, to point out wrongdoing, to critique. Correction is fixing the error. Training in righteousness is discipleship and guidance in the right way. We use the Word of God. It's profitable to these things. So we use it. We don't have any other tool to do these things. We use the Word of God. For the church of Jesus Christ, the Word of God is the instrument that we use to do these things, to teach, to admonish, to rebuke, reprove, exhort, encourage, to correct, to train. We have to use it. Now, what happens when we do this? Well, the answer is, broadly speaking, salvation happens, specifically with regard to sanctification. I have in mind here, John 17, 17, we know the Lord prayed that the, His Father would sanctify His people in the truth, and He says, Your Word is truth. Therefore, we would say, Christ prayed, sanctify them in the Word, the Word of God. We grow, we, we're sanctified by the use of the Word of God. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. James 1.21 says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. The Word, the Word, the Word. We must use it. Never assume it. The, the men get together every Saturday. For, for, for a while we spoke about the incarnation and, and we've said repeatedly, how, how basic is this to Christianity? The, the incarnation, the virgin birth. And yet we must come and we talk about it for weeks on end and, and we, we still haven't exhausted the subject. We, 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 we just keep going. And we come to the, the next one. We started yesterday. Jesus is God. Well, that's, that's basic to Christianity. Right. And we're going to talk about it for weeks because we have to reaffirm the same things. And that sanctifies us, that helps us to grow. We use the Word of God to teach, to reprove, to correct, to train. And when that Word is made effectual by the Holy Spirit, the people who live in that kind of atmosphere in a church will slowly but surely be made more and more like Christ. You might not see it happening moment by moment or day by day, but year after year, those people will become like Christ. The former ways that we inherited from our fathers will be chipped away and the, the new work, the inner man, is renewed day by day. We're made more and more holy. Not more and more bubbly, necessarily. Not more and more giddy, but holy. Not, not light with the things of the world. Not careless. Holy. God makes His people holy. A lot of people are encouraged every week by self-help talks in so-called churches. That's not our aim, is to just walk away encouraged about our plight in the world, but to become holy, to become more like Christ. I think that will actually encourage us in our walk in the world. And the aim of the use of God's Word by the Spirit is that we become more holy. Now, is the goal of this 
to have merely a morally righteous people so that we can all walk out and say, look how we walk in single file lines. Look how we all dress appropriately. We hold our heads appropriately. We speak appropriately. Is that, is that the ultimate goal? Well, I would say not merely that. The sanctification of the people of God through the constant use of the Word of God is what justifies Paul's famous description of the church as the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, it is true that what Paul is saying is that the church by nature, by design according to Christ, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. What he's not saying is that will happen apart from or regardless of, of any personal actions on the part of those who make up the church. It's what God, by His Spirit, is doing in us and through us and causing us to be, specifically becoming more and more like Christ, that makes the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth precisely when she makes use of the Word of God, the truth, in all of those areas, teaching and admonishing and, and correcting and training and reproving. She upholds the truth by using the truth. And as she does this, the people are being taught, they're being warned, they're being corrected, they're being trained to live the way that God has called them to live in a crooked and perverse generation. It's not perfection, but we are being taught, warned, corrected, rebuked, trained. When the world takes note of the differences, we prove ourselves with the Word of God. In other words, we... We vindicate our living by the truth. Christians are not people who say, well, recent studies show, and therefore I do this or that. No, we say God's Word says. This is how I live. I live this way because God's Word says this. And the goal of the use of word gifts, or simply the use of the Word of God, is to have a people who are like that, who are saturated in the Word, convinced by the Word, and shaped by the Word. Saturated in the Word. When, when, when this work is happening in a church, you have a, a people who are studying the Scriptures, who are reading their Bibles, who are learning their Bibles, who are speaking from their Bibles, people who are hearing the Bible, being taught the Bible, who are being warned by the Bible. If I handed you a rag, a, a washcloth that was saturated in water, it would have water inside the fibers and outside the fibers. You could touch it until it's wet. It would be heavy to the touch, not, not dry like, like a, or, or not light like a dry cloth. When you wring it out, it would pour water because it's saturated. That's the picture of a, a word-saturated people. When the church is saturated by the Word of God, you get around these people, you recognize these people have been in the Word of God. And the Word of God is in these people. And there's a, a, a weightiness to these people. They're living according to a principle that, that is deeper than just, well, we've just decided to do this or that. We, we, ha we are of this opinion or that opinion. You recognize it's deeper in these types of people. And then when you press these people and squeeze these people and even afflict these people, they pour forth the Word of God. As you see throughout history, the martyrs singing the psalms and preaching as they go to the stake. Because when you, when you afflict these, the people of God, the Word of God comes out. They're able and willing to give a defense for their hope, a reason for their peculiarities, a basis for their worldview. 
The answer of this type of person is always, Thus saith the Lord. My Bible says this. Why do you do this or that? Well, we just feel like it's best for our family. Blah, blah, blah. No, the Word of God says, if that's the way you reason, in five years what's best for your family will change. Your, your reasonings will change. I spoke with a couple this week and they said, well, in, in their church there are some families that just have a different philosophy of parenting. I said, we're working from one book. How many philosophies are in here? That, that shouldn't be so. We have the Word of God. We function according to the Word of God. People say, well, I notice your family doesn't do this or that. It's because in my study of the Word of God, I've come to these conclusions. Would you like to get out the Word of God and, and let's work through this together? That's how we reason. We're saturated in it. We don't have any other way of thinking. Saturated in the Word, convinced by the Word. When the Word of God speaks comfort, this type of person, their sorrow actually turns to joy because they're convinced. If that's the comfort that it gives, that's the comfort I receive. When the Word of God speaks rebuke, their levity will turn into godly sorrow for sin. I'm convinced that I'm in sin. I must change. In other words, when the Word of God is used amongst the people of God, it's not presented or heard as a suggestion. It's not put forth as a mere postulation of human cunning or, or considered as one option among many as to how we might interpret the world around us. Now this Again, it doesn't mean that we're all perfected or we all have it settled and, and right. It means that we go to the book and we interpret and we're convinced and we, we don't stop until we're convinced by the Word of God. The Word of God describes reality for them and interprets reality around them. For us, it, that being reality, everything in the universe, for us, it is as the Word of God says it is. And we don't have any other lens to interpret. This is why very often you'll hear people say, well, you need to listen to the other side and try to understand the reasoning of the culture and try to hear where they're coming from. We, I can't. My job is not to hear where you're coming from. My job is to tell you what God says about reality. You're wrong. And that's the way we think. I'm convinced by it. I don't have any other way of thinking or seeing. I don't understand your worldview. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, we understand they would say the same to us. Convinced by the Word and then shaped according to the Word. As these gifts are used, the Word of God becomes our consistent tool. Then all of a sudden, our lives that is in the church, in the home, in the world, they become shaped by what the Word of God requires. We've been instructed in Scripture and how to think of and treat and deal with our fellow men. Where we're wrong. We've been rebuked and reproved and expect that at some time in the future it's going to come again. I'm going to have to be rebuked. I'm going to have to be reproved. I'm going to have to be changed. I've seen errors in the past. I, am not, I won't be surprised if I find errors in the future. Our errors have been corrected by the clear teaching of Scripture and we expect they will continue to be so. We've been trained and are being trained on how we ought to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our exile. We are shaped according to the Word. So that, through the constant use of the Word of God, we're no longer conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We're living stones and we're being built up as a spiritual house so that when people see us, they'll recognize that this is a chosen race and a royal priesthood. This is a holy nation. These are a people of God's own possession, called out to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us into His marvelous light. These are a, these are a strange people. We don't have to... to 
to apologize for that or be apologetic for that. This, this type of, of message, this is not old-timey or old-fashioned. or, or this, is, this is Christianity. We are a people of the Scriptures unapologetically in everything. And when, when the Word is being used in the church, everybody recognizes, yeah, we're all on the same page. As I'm sure Kelly felt this week when others would come up to him after the, uh, the, the funeral where he shared the gospel. And they, they would say, I was encouraged, or, or thank you, or thank you for, for honoring Christ. There is great encouragement that comes from just seeing another person say, I believe what you said. I agree with what you said. I'm a Christian. What you described is what I believed. When we come into the, the assembly, that's how it ought to be. And then, and only then, will we actually serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth. A people radically shaped by the truth of God's Word, vindicating our lives through the proclamation of the Word of God. Why do you live that way? God's Word says... I've just vindicated it. Not recent studies show or science has proven or, or whatever. God's Word says, I've just vindicated everything. If I can prove to you from God's Word, that's, that's what it says. I've vindicated everything. Now they might not accept that. They might not believe that, but I've vindicated it. And that's what will happen. You'll have that type of people and they will know. Their people will know. The community will come to know. People around you will come to know. If I want the truth, those are the people I'm going to go to. I'm going to go to those people. If I want prayer, I'm going to go to those people to pray for me. If I want to understand something, I'll go to those people. Those people are serious. Every time I talk to them, the Bible comes out. The Word of Christ will dwell in us richly. Secondly, what is the goal of the love gifts? Gifts of, of, of sacrificial love or the deed gifts. The goal of the exercise of these love gifts in the local church is that the manifold perfections of the love of God Himself is displayed to each saint in the body and to those outside of the body. Now again, there are several steps to this, and this will be shorter. We must love one another. Listen to these portions of Scripture that we all know. As I read them this morning, I thought, man, this is good. This is <laughs> in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if God so loved us we also ought to love one another he said that's that's the only rational response to comp in comprehending what God has done for us in His Son is to love others. So we have to love one another. Out of love for one another, we serve one another. As Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. By this service, we meet the needs of others. If anyone has the world's good and goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's saying it, it doesn't. God's love doesn't abide in that type of person. James says it this way in James 2, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is it if you say, Well, all I've got is word gifts, so go in peace, be warm and filled. There, I did it. 
What good? James says that's no good. That's worthless. That doesn't help anybody. The implication, especially there in James, is that true saving faith produces works which will become a benefit and a service to the saints around us who are in need. And when we serve in this way, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We become those patterned after the very standard that Christ set of Himself in loving one another. John says back in 1 John, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. In other words, by loving one another and serving one another in love, the love of God is brought to completion through us and to others. God loves us or others through the actions of the saints working in the power of the Holy Spirit toward one another. It is God's very grace happening between us. It's showing God's own love. When we look at the church, when the world looks at the church, we ought to be able to see what the love of God looks like when it's manifested among men, patterned after Christ, which was selfless, sacrificial, dying to myself love. That's what Christ did for us. That's what people ought to see from us. Those people die to themselves so that they might love one another and love those around them. Christ said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When they look at you, they should be glorifying God. What a people. What a people would love like this. What has happened to these people? They're not like the world. When we do this, we vindicate the truth with our living. When we preach, we hold to Scripture, we're able to vindicate our living with the truth. When we live in love, we vindicate the truth with our living. That's what we're doing. All of that serves to uphold the truth. What is the truth? In talking about baptism, you know, we talked about a credible profession. What are we looking for? Well, they say this. Does their life bear that out? That makes it credible. The same thing happens for a church. A church can only have a credible profession if their living bears out what they profess. And if they profess, or if what they profess is pointing back to and proving and vindicating their living. That's a credible profession. How sad would it be to have a bunch of individuals who enter into an assembly based on a credible profession of faith, and yet that assembly can't even make a credible profession of what it believes to the world? Either because it doesn't know the truth, or because it preaches the truth but doesn't live according to the truth. I don't think we want that. So then lastly, number three, a picture of a word-saturated, sacrificially loving church. What can we expect to happen when all of this is taking place? And I'll read now from Ephesians 4, a longer section, verses 11 to 
We've heard, I mentioned previously about the, the ascension of Christ, mentioned just prior, the giving of these gifts is a testimony to His ascension. In verse 11, still speaking of Christ, it says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What can we expect if we believe we've received the promised Holy Spirit? We're not yet perfected, but the Spirit is working. The gifts are being used. What can we expect to happen? We, we can't guarantee salvations. I wish we could, but we can't. We can't guarantee numbers of baptisms and things like that, that people, we can't guarantee filled seats. But what can we expect? Well, the first thing that we, we can expect is internal health. All of this, the, the use of these gifts in the body will produce an internal health in the church, which is displayed in a few ways. First, there will be unity. We see that phrase, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, Paul probably has in mind the perfection of the thing, but I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to say that there ought to be always a growing and development of, of unity in the church. Christ intends for the church universally and locally to be ever-increasing in unity. But this is not just any unity. This is not a unity that says, well, we'll agree to disagree and remain silent on the things that we disagree about so that we all get along. That's not unity at all. The, the, the unity at that point becomes the unity of shared coordinates on a Sunday morning. The cushion stuffer at a furniture factory has more unity with his co-workers than that. It's got to be more than that. People in those atmospheres knows, well, I, I don't... I don't, I'm not going to talk about certain areas where we might disagree. Don't bring up political things. Don't bring up religious things because that'll, that'll start an argument in the workplace. Christians are not like that. We don't say, well, I'm not going to bring up the things that I believe because that might cause division. No, we want to be united around the truth. The unity here is the unity of the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not saying that we all attained the same measure and manifestation of, 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 of the grace of faith, but that we grow closer and closer in our unity around the truth, the doctrine that's revealed in Scripture. It's a truth around, or a unity around truth and doctrine, not in spite of doctrine and truth. It's for this very reason that every church ought to have a very thorough and detailed confession of faith. 
This is why we teach through the confession of faith. This is why when people come into our church, we want to know, do you have doubts? Do you have questions? Do you have disagreements, concerns? Not because we want to say, well, you're out. Because we want to know how to help, how to teach, how to come to a unity. We don't want an atmosphere where individuals or families feel like they have to stay quiet about what they really believe because it's in contradiction to the teaching of Scripture or our own confessional standards. We want unity. We want people who can listen to preaching and say, Amen. That's what I believe. That in itself is a testimony when there are unbelievers around or outsiders around. The the Amen. Christ would have all the members of the church unified in their understanding and profession of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their experimental understanding and relationship with the Son of God. He wants us growing toward that. I often pray for for marriages, that there would be a, a growing unity toward one another, toward Christ. Christ is the center And what we're after is not a a, a centrifugal forcing outward away from Him, but a centripetal uh, coming inwards, coming closer and closer, so that as we all get closer to Him, we're growing in unity with one another around Him. When the gifts of the Spirit are used, both word gifts and deed gifts, that helps strengthen our unity in the teaching of Scripture. Why? Because the truth will be vindicated by living, and our living will be vindicated by the truth. People may come in and they, they may differ in the way that they do things. But eventually, over time, they're going to be able to see, well, these people believe the Word of God. And the way that they're living is really just an outflow of what the Bible teaches. And if I say I believe the Word of God, then maybe perhaps I should change the way I'm living. And there, there, there's a unity there. We, we come closer and closer together. Or perhaps someone comes in who doesn't do things like we do, and we look at them and we say, well, those people believe the Word of God, and their living is flowing out of the Word of God. And I believe that I, I subscribe to the teaching of Scripture. I'm wrong. So maybe I need to come closer to their side. It, it's vindicated, and a unity is developed there. The second thing that you'll see in, in this type of church when it comes to internal health is maturity. Christ works in His churches to move us along to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Are we perfected yet? Are we at that full maturity? No, but we're moving that way. And this means that each member is going to be growing in their understanding of the truth and their practical application of it in their lives. Infants in the faith will be strengthened by the milk of the Word. Those uh, who are a little further will be strengthened by a little bit, a little bit more. The, those more mature are strengthened and nourished by the meat, and they grow into maturity. Our souls ought to be fed by the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God that are found in Christ, and we're strengthened in the faith. And that maturity leads to stability. When there's unity and maturity, you get stability. We see this in the phrase that we would no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This means the members of this kind of church are going to be rooted and grounded in sound doctrine and they won't be easily 
led astray, or distracted by false teaching or clever pragmatism. It is possible for young, immature Christians to be caught off guard because they're not rooted and grounded. But when you grow to maturity, you get to the point where you, can, you learn. I'm not falling for that again. That's, you're not deceiving, deceiving me with that. There comes a, a stability there. And the church itself is not tossed to and fro by all of the, the waves of everything that's happening around it, but it's grounded in the truth. Discernment will be on high alert, high, high alert, as well as the willingness to exhort, that is to come alongside and give aid to the weak, so that even if you have individuals who might not be as mature, you still have others in the body who can, who can come around them and, and, and encourage them, support them, protect them. Stability, and then there's Vitality. This will produce a vitality, a a constant flow of spiritual life through the members by the Holy Spirit and from Christ Himself. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. From whom? There's a, a life source here. It's Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There, love. There's, there's vitality, there's growth, there's movement, there's van, advancing. That's how you know something's alive. It's moving, it's making progress. Each member will be regularly presenting their members to God in order to live to God and to use the gifts of the Spirit for the common good so that the whole body, by the power of Christ's Spirit, works to build itself up. As we've seen, it's from His fullness that we've all received grace upon grace. And then we, in turn, become vehicles of God's very grace toward one another. What does that look like? Back to where we began. It looks like teaching, rebuking, training, loving, encouraging, rescuing, giving, serving, showing mercy, compassion, tenderness. Doing it all in the name of Christ, out of love for Christ and love for His church. So there's internal health. A word-saturated, sacrificially loving church will have an internal health, a unity, a maturity, a stability, and a vitality. But this in turn will produce a valid and effective external witness. It's not all just about what happens inside the, the assembly. What this does is this, again, by the very nature of what Christ has designed the church to be, this causes the church to be an external witness. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nobody brings a lamp into a house and covers it up. It doesn't work that way. It won't work that way. This leads to external witness. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, it was when the outsiders dared not join them, they held them in high esteem. They respected them early on because they were a respectable people. They said, this is a people, who they're, they're grave and they're serious, and yet they're joyful. These people's needs are being met, and yet there's deadly consequences for sin. They esteemed them. It was during that very time of great marked distinction between the church and the world that Luke says multitudes of men and women were being added to the church. In Acts 1-2, we learned, we learned that Jesus has, had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. What commands is He talking about? I think it's at least the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we can deduce that a word-saturated, sacrificially loving church will be one which embodies that commission in some way as the Lord opens doors for effective ministry, looking for doors for effective ministry. A healthy church will be one which makes disciples. A healthy church will be one in which children are being discipled in their homes. They're hearing the Word of Christ taught and sung in their homes. A healthy church will see the importance of training up and sending out preachers. My favorite illustration has always been that if a, a, a heart is to pump blood to its extremities of the body, then it has to be healthy. In the same way, a, a church has to be healthy if it's going to pump the gospel into homes and into workplaces and into the streets and amongst the nations. If the gospel is to be sent forth, it requires constant attention to the health and vigor of the local church and of each family in the church and each individual saint in the church. We don't, we don't look to missions and, and evangelization globally at the cost of the local church, nor do we, do we gaze at our, our ecclesiastical navel at, at, the, at the cost of the nations. There has to be both, but in their proper order. So it will produce an external witness. When we're, we're vindicating the way we live with the truth and vindicating the truth with the way we live, that's going to have ripple effects outside of what happens in this room. Now I found this very interesting. I've preached these, these sermons before and I've, I've been using my former notes to help me. And I've found this quote in in the notes from the last time that I preached this sermon. I asked this question. How could a church of 34 people, including 15 children, play a role in displaying the glory of God on the earth? That was preached June 18th, 2017. So here we are. July 3rd, 2022, five years and two weeks later. And if everybody were here, I could ask it this way. Assuming those regularly in this room desire to join us in this work, the question remains, how could a church of 80 people, including 50 children, play a role in displaying the glory of God on the earth? Now when you put those numbers together, you think, wow, you don't notice it necessarily when it's happening. Week by week by week by week. But then after five years, you say, boy, we thought when we had 15 children, we thought we, we got to find a bigger building. We can't, we can't do this. It's just too much. And we would tell people, well, 35 people, but 15 children. <gasps> and now we say, well, now we, we've got 80 people in attendance, 50 children. Though we've grown, we're still very small. That's, that's a, this is a small number. So the question remains, how? The work is still too big for us. How can, how can we imagine that we might have any type of external witness? The fields white for harvest are more vast than anything that we've ever seen. 
They span not only the entire globe, but are constantly being replaced and replenished in every generation. The fields white for harvest. How can we even think? Eighty people, but fifty of them are children. Maybe they'll grow up. How How can we imagine that we would even be able to hoe out one row in this field of harvest? It's too big for us. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And John years later saw it when he said in the midst of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The answer is through the real spiritual presence of the head of the church. He's with us. We don't rely on our own power. It goes back to to sanctification. It goes back to walking in obedience. It goes back to living out of of what we believe. It goes back to entrusting ourselves to Him, resting in Him. Jesus Christ is with His church. It's His power. It's His Spirit. He promised the Spirit. He promised He would be with us. And so we act believing the promise. If 2 Timothy 3.16 is relevant, and I believe that it is, then we should expect in a word-saturated, sacrificially loving church, the ignorant will need to be taught, the erring will need reproof, those who are wrong will need to be corrected, the wayward will need instruction in righteousness, In other words, a word-saturated, sacrificially loving church is not a perfected church. That's not what we're expecting. But it will be a church filled with the Holy Spirit, working with the tools and gifts that God has given us to do what God has commanded us to do because we believe Jesus Christ is with us. He meets with us. He's our worship leader. He gathers in our midst. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He looks us forward more forward to gathering with the saints on the Lord's day, His day, than we do. He's with us. And this is the kind of church we trust will be owned of the Lord and used according to His good pleasure in the world. And that's what we're after. Not the smiles of men. The smiles of God. I want God to look down and say, I want to use that church in some way. It might be a little way. We don't get to pick whether we're used in a big way or a small way. That's up to Him. But we want to be strive to be obedient so that we can trust that God looks down and says, that's one of my churches and I want to use those people and bless their work. So we use the gifts. We we make ourselves available. Yield to the leading. Study the Scriptures. We get a little bit of a picture of what it looks like to use the Word of God. And then we look for ways to serve one another. We be ready to love one another and, and, and love one another seeking ways to serve one another. And we just keep doing that. Now let me make one final appeal. Because there might be someone here for whom all of this is strange. You look upon it as an outsider. And it's because you're not a Christian. You've never been born again. You love your sin too much to come to Christ. Or you love love yourself too much to, to love others. Whatever the case may be, if that's you, I would love 
for you to come to me today, pull me aside at some point, and explain to me all of the reasons why you don't want to be a Christian. Just tell me. Explain to me why you think that eking out a, 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 a pathetic 30 years of trying to fill up your own cisterns to no effect. Explain to me why that is, is more to be desired than, than what Christ offers in the gospel. Explain to me why I should abandon everything I've just said and follow your scheme. Now, I think if that's you, you hear that and you say, well, I don't want to do that. That would be embarrassing or knowing him, he's, he's going to try to argue me out of it. Then that's correct. So what do you think you're going to do when you stand before God? You can't even walk up to another person and say, this is why I'm not coming to Christ, and you're, yet you're going to stand before God and answer for every, every breath that He's given you, that you used to hate Him, to curse Him, to rebel against Him. You can't even talk to me, but you're going to stand before God? God sent His Son to save sinners, and He promises to give His Spirit to indwell us, to sanctify us, to keep us, to glorify us, and yet people say, I, I think I've got a better way. That's foolish. That is foolishness. So my appeal is, abandon that ship, if that's you. Abandon that ship, turn away from that path. Christ will give you rest if you'll come. You just got to let it go. And you got to come to Him. I was struck by what was said in one of the prayers, that God still allows men to stand erect. And still calls people to himself. After this many years of rebellion, still saving people, still calling people. You're going to tell me God doesn't want to save sinners? Uh, he sent his son to die on the cross to suffer under his, his just wrath to pay for the sins of all who would come to Him so that they would be saved. And you're going to tell me God doesn't want to save sinners? Um, now, I know people struggle with, with language. We all do. And, and we might feel uncomfortable saying statements like that. Uh, we don't know who the elect are. That's none of our business. So I can tell any sinner, God wants to save you. If, if, if I need to be reproved when I get to glory, then I'll, I'll let that be. But if, if God sends His Son and He sends a preacher, God's saying, you need to be saved. If somebody turns from that and they say, I don't want to hear that, well, then they've, they've manifested themselves. But when we come to the Lord's table, that's what we're saying. What we're saying, we're being reminded, those who us, of us who are Christians... God want, wanted from eternity to save your sin-sick soul and bring you to Himself. That He sent His Son. Yeah. And then those who are, are, are not Christians can hear the Christian saying, this God sent His Son to save sinners. Right. That, sh that should cause rejoicing. It is a, it's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. It's a wonderful thing. So as the elements are passed and, and we, we come to the table, let's just keep that in mind. We, we have a God who, who loves to save sinners.